I am still Madeline, um, episode five, part five um, of our simulcast upload with the millions missing. Um, so this was, this is now August 25th. So it's much later than those four episodes you just listened to. So again, as I said in the intro, bear with me if I end up repeating myself, cause I do not remember. And I've listened to those three times. And by the time I finish listening to them, I still don't remember what it is I said. So I'm just going to do the best I can. So in this episode, we are going to, I'm going to talk about, um, the progression of my illness in a, a little bit more of a linear fashion, but even within that, it cannot be strictly linear because I, I obtained understandings later on that I'll sort of weave back, you know, keeping in mind that a lot of my illness happened in my adolescence. I had no perspective on it. Um, but even like the second round of mono, um, at 30, uh, perspectives were gleaned much, much later, you know, when I took the reins back from the medical community and finally started going like, I need a partner. I am my own um, medical person because I'm not getting any help um, other than being patted on the head and being told to be less stressed. <laughs> I mean, it's like when, when you ask a doctor what's wrong, like reasonably and calmly, and rather than them doing their job, their response is to say, be less stressed. Oh, I have thoughts and opinions on that one. So I do find all this extremely difficult to talk about. So I've saved one of my favorite stories for this episode. This will be the, uh, uh, it's the Red Feather Broth Saga. And this episode has part one and the next episode has part two. So this is kind of the, uh, the inception. And I, I think you may have already figured out that I probably adore Halloween. And if you have, then you're absolutely correct. I, um, uh, until very recently, I'll get, just get, if I'm going to an appointment, I'll still get dressed up on Halloween day. I, I've, I've become so energy limited that I, I've struggled even with that, which is, um, a huge emotional issue because this is like one of those moments that I really savor is Halloween. And, um, but even back then, if, if nobody else was going on, on the actual day, I would still, <laughs> I would still go out, um, which I was planning to do that year. And uh, I decided that I would go as my interpretation of the color red. Because in theater school, we were embodying colors. I mean, theater school is weird. <laughs> Let's be frank. Theater school is weird. My part of my um, audition to get in, well, audition, they, you, they do a monologue. And if you get through that hurdle, then they put you through a bunch of other hurdles. And one of them was, and, and I'm, I'm in the room with a bunch of other people thinking, this is how I go to university. Because they, they split us up into E worms, E like the letter E and ooh worms and um if you were an e-worm you're supposed to look for the other e-worms and if you're ooworm the same and so we're on the floor wiggling without our arms looking at going like ee, 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 and ooh, ooh, you know depending on the worm you were and, um, and then the teacher says and now i'm throwing you in a vat of acid and we all had to die horribly so you know theater school is a weird place they're really trying to like crack you open emotionally and have you access things. So this particular semester, they had us um, sort of accessing color 
you know, really playing with color. And I have this visualization where we're all on our floor, we're all on the back, uh, on the ground, on our backs and um, with our legs pulled up. So your back is nice and flat in a good position. And, and she's, um, she's having us just sort of visualize a color. And I, I believe it was yellow and she had us like visualize it in our, around our um, solar plexus. Um, and we just absolutely, um, collectively peeled into laughter um I swear to god we just laughed for like a half an hour so I became very influenced by this idea of our emotional connection to color so um, to me this was that a similar kind of exploration of color and and I think that's important to know because Well, I won't jump too far ahead. I won't give you too much of a spoiler. Um, and, and, but even, even so, even the early stages of the creation of the outfit should have um, <laughs> tweaked me to the reaction I was going to get to it, but it didn't. So I end up, I don't know where you buy feathers from. Um, but there was a bait shop, you know, like a fishing bait shop in my neighborhood. So I wander in wearing this micro mini, like this, this 80, uh, sorry, 60s flowered micro mini, mini that I got secondhand and a gigantic pink hat. And I swear to God, the guy behind the counter, this like burly, burly guy. And I think he thought a unicorn had wandered into his shop. He's like, okay. So I said, did you have feathers? And he's like, yeah, they're over there. So I like at this big bag of, and um, it turned out to be kind of these, this uh, colored turkey feather, they said. So it's quite thick on the, the bottom relatively thick and then the end is quite long and thin and sort of like you know floats a little bit I thought oh these are so beautiful yes yes I'll take those and um and then I wait until the day to to start um really getting started I had dyed an old bra and stupidly had chosen one that was mesh because I know nothing about sewing. So um, I'm sewing the feathers on individually and I suddenly realized that I've really bitten off more than I can chew because like to cover enough of the breast to not get arrested was going to take me forever. So here I am on Halloween madly sewing individual feathers onto a bra for like five hours. <laughs> And so like I was heading out um, to because I was like to pick some I love to go dancing dancing was like my my life I miss dancing so much I can't explain to you um, but there was this amazing funk band playing that night called the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir and I love them and so I finally got the bra done and I put the rest of my costume on and I jumped on the metro and and I got to the pub and I'm like I'm like basically through threw my coat at the coat check girl and like pushed my way through the crowd right to the front of the stage thinking like, oh, phew. <sighs> you know, it's just the opening band still. Although I really like the opening band as well. So I, I like to dance right up next to the stage. So I'm right up next to the stage and the, um, the, the lead singer is like doing that pitter patter thing they do on the microphone, like chatting to the crowd and whatnot. And, and, uh, oh, so hold on. I, I should describe what I'm looking, I look like. So I have done my makeup like a porcelain, like a porcelain, um, pale with like a bright red lip and, and, uh, 
and I've slicked my hair back, kind of a la addicted to love, that kind of slicked back. I have a, a red feather mask and I have it sort of pulled up a little bit, sort of sitting sitting in my hairline so I can see. And then I have this um, sort of flowy red scarf tied around my neck that sort of hangs down the back and, you know, sways behind me whenever I move. And uh, uh, the red feather bra. So let, let me explain. Um, the feathers, once they were all on, I'd sort of, I'd sewed, sewed them up, right? And so when I had them, they sort of fell forward into like, almost if you took your hand from your chest, like that's how far they stuck out from my chest. Um, and they undulated like sea anemones. We <laughs> actually turned out really good. And then I took a, um, uh, a big uh, piece of cloth like a bustier around my belly and then a piece of crenlin to create like a, a bustle behind me and I had a long piece of shiny um, brocade fabric that I also bustled in the back and then I wore green Doc Martens because I was dancing <laughs> that was all there was to it and um, so this lead singer he catches sight of me and he just stops talking and he goes oh my god I would be your love slave any day. And the whole of the bar turns around and looks at me. And this is the moment that it occurred to me that maybe my outfit was a little more outrageous than I thought. <laughs> and that is part one, <laughs> the birth of the red feather bra. All right. Whew. Speaking of birth of things, genesis of my disease. Um, Okay, so at 12, um, I went to summer camp and one of the other kids there had gotten over mono. And, uh, you know, as kids always share food and drinks. And so before, you know, my, my family had some medical people in it. So um, because I knew she had mono, I even said to her, are, are you still contagious? And she said, no, the doctor said I wasn't contagious anymore. So I shared drinks and like not a week later, I came down with mono and it was really bad. Um, I had a pneumonia so severe that they had to pound my back every night so I didn't suffocate in my sleep. I think the only reason I wasn't in the hospital is that we did have medical people um, in my family. Otherwise, they, I don't think I could have been left um, alone. And that pneumonia lasted a solid month. But the mono itself lasted eight months. I was sick so much uh, and out of school so much that after Christmas, we had two um, of grades of, uh, of uh, I don't know, what was it, grade four, I think. Um, so there was two classes of that. And my class told the other class that I was dead. <laughs> which created much alarm when I came back the next week for a few days. But basically, I, I was just so sick for eight months. Um, I get a little bit better. We try to go back to school. I crash out again. And I was, I was actively infected. You know, the blood, case, blood test came back active for eight months. And then what happened is, so before the first round of mono, I remember having one mild chicken pox and one serious flu and that's it i got nothing i mean when i said i had the immune system of a god i'm, I'm not exaggerating that was a pretty awesome immune system and that immune system just went bye-bye and um 
even though to this day immune deficiencies are are uh, very much living in the land of the abdication of care that mitochondrial disorders are, uh, probably for a very similar reason in that um, they tend to afflict women at a higher rate than men. Sadly, that I think is probably the case. But um, it did seem to precipitate um, an unusual investigation, which in retrospect, I think was probably early genetic testing. So I remember being in the uh, immunologist's office, you know, because I was catching everything, everything, you name it, a series of ear infections till my eardrums burst, a series of urinary tract infections until I couldn't pee anymore, like on and on and on. Like these were not small infections. And I think I've already talked about like how many I was almost constant. I was occasionally not on antibiotics. Let's put it that way. So I remember sitting in his office and, um, and, you know, I think a lot of other conversations happened outside of my earshot, but he said to my parent, um, letters and numbers all together, like it was a word. He said, um, it's gone. And I, uh, I don't think it's coming back. He said it might, I guess. I mean, this is really early immune deficiency exploration, um, and in retrospect now, I mean, once a part of your immune system is gone, it's gone unless they create some new CRISPR thing, like something new. But as it stands right now, if a virus, because he did think it was the mono that he said, no, I think it's the mono, mononucleosis, uh, AKA Epstein-Barr vi uh, virus, which, um, for those of you who don't know, is part of the herpes simplex family. Um, which seems to be a classic precursor um, in, in many research um, papers that I've read um, for mitochondrial damage. Um, now, nobody talked about mitochondrial disorders back then. And um, in the past couple of years, I've had doctors say, well, you know, I think you're mitochondrial disorder. I think the ME actually started with the first round of mono. I think you had mild ME. Um, that could well be the case. I think I've already spoken about the fact that I also do believe there is such a thing as a secondary mitochondrial disorder. And with an immune deficiency as profound as mine was right out of the gate um, and, and how often I was sick, I was occasionally not infected with something that steals massive amounts of energy from the body. So was there some primary damage? Probably. Um, was the immune system a, a, a huge factor in what I now understand to be mitochondrial crashes? Because I was crashing a lot and not understanding what was going on. And so I just felt bad about myself. I was given this like like general sense that I was lazy and if I just tried harder and, and if you know anything about mitochondrial disorders, trying harder, pushing past is the worst thing you could possibly do. But none of these conversations were happening in the 80s or the 90s or like really until the last like five or six years, I've never heard of an energy envelope. So um, up until the age of 15, um, I was basically chronic infection girl. And then at 15, a new, a new thing got added in, um, which is it looked like I had hypothyroidism. So your thyroid is, a, is like basically a big part of your metabolism and that metabolic um, endocrine, you know, thing. And my body 
Now, we didn't find this out till five years later. My body was attacking. My immune system started attacking the thyroid. Um, no, the problem is, and I don't know how many post-viral patients experience this, but I didn't have blood test indicators that showed I had a thyroid problem. So visually, every single solitary symptom of hypothyroidism, and I was miserable. My cycle became an absolute nightmare because it has a huge impact on that. I mean, I was struggling emotionally because it, it makes you, um, it can make you depressed. Um, like every sim, like it, it, it was like a laundry list of every single one, but because the allopathic medicine, medical protocols are so attached to their blood work and not their eyeballs, because with your eyeballs, um, they chose to do nothing about it, but take blood tests for the next five years. And the problem with that is with what was, what later got dubbed Hashimoto's thyroiditis, an autoimmune disorder. If they had put me on Synthroid when they saw the symptoms, then my body would have stopped attacking the thyroid. So we would have saved energy. And now the thyroid is completely scarred up. It will never function on its own. Um, and, and that didn't have to happen. You know, it's not good. Your body can't flex without being able to create its own um, synthroid. That's synthroid. Uh, thyroxin is what that endohormone is called. And synthroid is the artificial version. Um, and so that my body doesn't look like it's creating any synthroid anymore. It, it's bad because there is no flex in the body. So, so that was one of the first problems that came up. Um, as part of the post-viral syndrome and the abdication on all of the elements of that. Um, and so at 20, I developed a goiter and I had an endocrinologist go like, I don't care if the blood work goes. Okay. So I, goiter is when the thyroid becomes enlarged. So I got this big old goiter and the blood work is still normal. So they finally put me on Synthroid and I went from having two week long hardcore periods with intense pain and another week of PMS before that even started to two day periods with hardly any PMS and a dramatic decrease in pain. So they let me suffer for five years rather than, you know, with their eyeballs doing their job. Instead, they put me on the contraceptive pill to try to control my period. Now that of course is not a great thing to do because it can affect the body in a whole bunch of negative ways. And what became uh, another offshoot is that um, when they put me on the Synthroid, I really started to react weirdly to the pill. And um, my acne, um, which had, had started uh, pretty much after, now that I think about it, after, after the first round of mono. And, and this was hardcore acne. This was like really problematic acne, which I later came to understand where it, it, it was actually part and parcel of the immune deficiency. There was, it was just one more infection the body couldn't fight. Um, and I, uh, and I'll talk later about how that actually went systemic. That's how dangerous something as simple as acne can be to somebody whose energy production system and um, immune system are not working properly. So anyway, back to, um, I'm on Synthroid and they, 
uh, so I tell every doctor, I tell them, I'm going to go off the pill. It's making me sick. And nobody says anything to me. So I go off the pill and I become so sick, like progressively over the course of about two months to the point that people were moving away from me on the bus. I just looked ill. I felt so sick. And finally, somebody ran blood work and I had become massively hyperthyroid. So like you've had too much thyroid in your system. And what turned out to have happened, and, and it was it was a dermatologist who explained this to me actually, is that there is a binding with the contraceptive pill and the thyroxine. And so um, when you go off it, it kind of dumps a whole bunch of thyroxine in the system. And then I'm still taking the Synthroid. So I'm just doing this buildup of it in my body. So they had to take me completely off it altogether and to do a reset and then put me back on it. So I was going to summer school and university at the time and um, I just lost a whole semester. I, I was so sick again from this, this abdication of, of care and understanding complex chronic illness. You know, you've got people just looking at a teeny tiny piece and not the interactive, not the, uh, the real housewives of post-viral syndrome, you know? <laughs> um, so just before I started university, like literally just before I went to the city where I was going and, um, got, you know, and so I went from like small town maritimers maritime to like a big city. And I, I came home with like a terrible intestinal bug, like wicked diarrhea. And, um, it just wouldn't stop and it wouldn't stop and it wouldn't stop and it wouldn't stop. And oh my God, it wouldn't stop. And for 12 years from that time, I had chronic vicious diarrhea. And I saw everyone I saw like, and I, and I think I might've already told the story about the GI guy with his hand up my ass who tells me to be less stressed because, because what we discovered 12 years after the start of this is that it was an autoimmune disorder. Uh, apparently an infection is a classic, um, you know, the, the celiac disease is, um, the body's, uh, immune hyperreaction to an element called gluten. And so, uh, one of the big ways now they actually now think there's a lot of other ways it affects the body that are not clearly understood or recognized, but one of the most overt ways is that it affects the cilia in the gut. Um, and so, uh, they're like little fingers in the gut. Uh, that gives you the gut more surface area to absorb nutrition. So those flatten out completely. And there are children who's, uh, who are not, when not, not diagnosed properly, you can actually die of starvation. Y your body no longer absorbs nutrition properly at all. Now, they didn't even look for that. You know, there was no internet for me to discover it on my own and nobody ever mentioned celiac disease. And, and part of that, again, is yet another atypical presentation, which is I now know that when I undereat, I retain water. So I look big and it's non-pitting edema. So it's hard to identify as water. So in the same way with the Hashimoto's thyroiditis, the blood tests didn't fit their protocols. I visually didn't fit the protocols for celiac disease. And I also think that the starvation, like I, I have a suspicion of what the Hashimoto's thyroiditis might have been about, which is, think about it, the mitochondria are becoming more and more and more stressed. 
um, they're, they're not able to do their job. And so the thyroid, that, that thyroid hormone sends out an ask for more energy, but the mitochondrial system cannot provide it. So the immune system steps in and starts attacking the problem as it sees it, which is this request for energy the body cannot produce. That's my guess about why the body got so interested in my thyroid. Um, now, the problem once you develop one autoimmune disorder is you tend to develop another one uh, and many more. And, the, and Hashimoto's and celiacs pair up. I now know this from research that these guys tend to go together. Um, and so nobody was looking for them together. Again, both of these individually have had a fair bit of advocation. Celiacs has become much more known lately, but the tests for that are still ridiculous and inconclusive in a lot of ways. So FYI. Um, but I, I can't help but think that the thyroid issue and the celiacs issue were, were you know, having a real housewives moment with each other. Because um, the more you starve, the more the less the body has energy, and so the more uh, we may have more um, autoimmune hyperreactivity to the thyroid. And the thyroid, uh, I believe, in retrospect, was doing something called uh, thyroxin resistance. So. Thyroid hormone is T4, T3, T2, and T1. Synthroid is T4, and the body is meant to convert it to T3. But, but if I, I'm starving because of the celiacs, then the body may go, well, no, we don't want that energy ask and turn it back to T4 because synthroid never totally worked. I remained cold. I remained symptomatic. There's a certain kind of, your, your face takes on more um, uh, male features, if you will, partly and due to the puffiness. And so it never really resolved until much, much later with the, uh, they were trying out something called, uh, and, I, and I will tell you about more about this later, but it's important to weave this back for a moment. Um, uh, metformin is a diabetes drug um, that kind of allows glucose to flow into the cell better. So we were attempting to manage the edema with the metformin because for some people that really works. And instead, what we got was suddenly my thyroid hormones started working dramatically better. Like, like I became hyperthyroid. They started acting so much better and we had to do a huge adjustment to them. So all these years ago, um, you know, the, the celiac's disease, um, and it may have been a pre-existing uh, glucose uptake issue, um, because of the mitochondrial disorder, but then you start starving it um, with the celiac's disease. So, so you're really creating a perfect storm of damage in other areas with the, uh, you know, it's like the clash of the titans, like autoimmune system attempting to do things the main part of the system can't do is a lot like Hulk smash. Hulk smash. Like Hulk is trying to help, but, but, you know, we need like surgeon fingers, not like big Hulk smash, but that's what was going on. And I, I'm sorry, this is so complex. I mean, I know you guys might be glazing over a little bit, so please bear with me. Um, all right. Uh, throughout the about 17 I stopped sleeping I think uh, many of you may know that 
Uh, insomnia is a hallmark of mitochondrial disorder in ways they don't really understand, probably to do with facets of brain damage um, that the virus may have done or the progression of the illness. Like it's really hard to know. And again, I do suspect all four pillars started um, in a mild form, at least three of them in a mild form. You know, the multiple chemical sensitivities, the fibromyalgia, um, uh, along with the mitochondrial and uh, immune issues. Um, so it's, it's a little hard to parse what might have been going on back then because fibromyalgia is a hyperactivity of the brain. You know, that has some insomnia factors in there. Um, I, I have forgot. Let me just roll back for a moment on the multiple chemical sensitivities. Um, I became sensitive to everything, to nickel on my skin, like contact dermatitis, allergies, you name it, I became sensitive. And that's flexed and bowed a little bit. It seems like when the mitochondrial system is doing a little better, the multiple chemical sensitivity experience seems to settle. I'm not sure what the skinny and the scoop is on that. I don't know if it's because it's giving the immune system more juice and then it's less hyperactive in some ways. I don't know if I can just handle the effects of chemicals a little better. Um, it's not every chemical, but um, it's definitely worsened over the years. I was having really, really, really bad, and, and forgive me guys, but you know, this is what happened, um, vaginitis. And they ran every test you possibly ran until a dermatologist said, I think you're having a contact dermatitis to the soap you're using um, to on your shower and your laundry soap and your toilet paper. So we shifted those and what had been almost a chronic infection from the age of about 16, 17 suddenly settled. So I mean, to be constantly infected in one of the most sensitive parts of your body because of the multiple chemical sensitivities creating a contact dermatitis. And this is why it's so important. I mean, I'm going to roll forward for a moment. When you look at the lack of supports for PWD on assistance, persons with disability on assistance, um, every single solitary facet of my illness has its own expense. And if that isn't properly managed, it, it, it real housewives it with the other issues. So the immune issue got itself absolutely skyrocketed because of a contact dermatitis with the soaps I was using and the toilet paper I was using. So, <laughs> okay, what else was happening in that um, between the first round and second round of mono? Um, I was experiencing a lot of self-doubt. Um, because in university I kept, so we were doing plays and, you know, it's very high energy. And then I would crash, I would absolutely crash. And I would say to myself, oh, you're lazy. Just like, look at you crashing again. And like, and I would, and I was getting that feedback from my family as well. And I just felt so bad about myself because I thought this was some emotional deficit of mine, not understanding that this was a biological deficit. This was a biological issue based on that first round of mono. There was no connection of that, of that thought or information, you know, and I felt, I felt really bad that I wasn't really able to hold a summer job properly. The further I went into university, cause I'm working so far 
outside my energy envelope. I mean, like so far. And I'm pretty sure I talked about, um, I'm pretty sure I talked about the, uh, the, the theater summer camp that I went to when I was 15. Well, I'm in it, I, that crash of doing those five weeks of, of hardcore, um, activity, like from like seven o'clock in the morning to like 10 o'clock at night. Um, I crashed out for years after that. Like it took me years to sort of sort of kind of bounce back. Um, and so university, the farther I got into it, the sicker I was becoming without understanding any of that. And, and all the while, just like liquid fire diarrheaing it. And, and <laughs> keep in mind, there were times in which I would just stop eating. I would stop eating and just drink juice because I couldn't handle the diarrhea. I lived my life like needing to know where toilets were constantly and the, the intestinal cramping and pain. Um, you know, I, I, I had a conversation not too long ago with a, a leading naturopath um, who does a, a lot of teaching. And I, I said to them, please stop telling your students that pain is subjective. Because at least they don't say that the mitochondrial issues are subjective. But, but they are still within all modalities of medicine talking about pain being subjective. Pain is not subjective. Pain is uh, the same as if uh, the electrical signal that lights your light bulb, you know, biochemical and electrical. That's what it is. The subjectivity is the system that hasn't created ways of assessing that because instead they lean into the bias of it being subjective. You know, if a person was just stronger, they could handle it more or blah, blah, blah. And then all the race bias goes in there, and the gender bias and you name it. But pain is not subjective. Um, what is something, and I said this to her, I, I said, what is something that a physician or a medical practitioner needs to learn to assess is what are the coping strategies that a person has? Because the biological effects of pain are the biological effects of pain. Just because I can slather on huge layers of suck it up buttercup doesn't mean that it's absolutely, uh, that, that it's not absolutely destroying my body. Because pain does terrible, terrible things to your body. Um, so like for me, I mean, I am a trained singer and a trained um, actor with extens extensive um, meditation experience. So all of those things, we have to learn how to manage the limbic system, that auto automatic system that so pain triggers fight, flight and freeze. And then that tends to create a kind of a, a emotional cascade of, of difficulty in managing the pain. So I know how to do that. I mean, I've had people say like, oh, have you tried meditation? It's just like, forgive me for sounding salty here, but it's like short of you stumbling across a guru on a mountaintop. Please don't talk to me about that. Like, I know how to do that. I've been dealing with pain since I was eight. I know how to do it. If I can't do it, it can't be done. So when I talk about MAID and I talk medical assistance in dying, and when I talk about the extremity of pain, we're, we're talking about like catastrophic pain. I was telling someone today, like I, I play a lot of mind games with myself about the pain, minimizing it so I can pretend it's less than it is so I can navigate it. 
And I've got an upcoming rheumatologist appointment in which I'm going to have to tell him what's happening. And the last time I'd had like that sort of assessment um, with a rheumatologist to that extreme, I ended up accidentally lying to him because I emotionally froze up and could not talk about it. Like I couldn't talk about it. So through the ages of 12 to 30, I, I don't really talk about pain very much. In retrospect, with a medical practitioner I have now, who's known me for like 20 years, you know, she's, she says, when you start talking about pain, you have fallen off a cliff. You won't talk about pain. Like she really struggles to get me to talk about it. And then, um, you know, when I, when I number it one to 10, you know, I, she now has me sort of describe everything about it. And, and we did that like maybe six months ago with something. And I said, I think that's a seven. And she, she got like big saucer eyes and she's like, that's not a seven. That's like a nine. That's a nine and a half. That's not a seven. And so I've tried to understand as I knew I was going to do this recording and I'm going to have to talk about pain and I don't like talking about pain. Um, my 10 is, is not what other people would quantify as a 10. Um, my 10 is when more than one area of the body is at a 10. <laughs> like, because then it becomes this cacophony of pain in the brain that I can no longer even pretend to navigate, not with my superhuman limbic control skills and my crazy, you know, wind up doll Pollyanna positivity. Like it's just not possible. Um, but is that what a real life 10 is? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think, I think one part of the body at a 10 is what other people would quantify as a 10. But for me, it's multiple areas because, you know, the, the, it, the, the fibro is what becomes really difficult to navigate. Um, all right. Let me just see. I feel like I'm running out of brain power. Let me see how long I'm into this, um, 37. I, I'm feeling like I'm out of brain power and I'm thinking uh, severe ME listeners will be out of brain power as well. So in the next episode, I will talk about um, the second round of mono and then I'll try to tie up some of the, the elements it, that interact throughout the, the both of them.